staying in the academic realm alone for us has not been tenable. And that's why social medicine has been a way for us to express praxis, right? The beautiful um, marrying of education and action. Either you're a part of the system by either not seeing the system or choosing to not address it, or you're fighting it. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Welcome everybody to another episode of Social Medicine On Air, coming to you from bedroom closets around the United States. Um, today we have the pleasure of being joined by Ruth Staus. Uh, Ruth, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Um, yeah, I'm Ruth Staus. I am a professor of nursing and global health and social medicine. Um, I teach at Metropolitan State University. I've been a practicing nurse practitioner for about 24 years. I work in community-based um, primary care. Um, most of my scholarly work um, the last couple of years has been directed at looking at issues of racism and its effect on health. And I'm also a founding member of the Social Medicine Consortium Minnesota chapter um, campaign against racism. Well, wonderful. You'd mentioned that some of your research and work has been in the area of race. And I know that in the COVID pandemic, we have been increasingly realizing uh, the disparities and I think between racial groups and not only um, an infection, but in terms of death and uh, recovery and in many other ways, it's becoming increasingly clear. How have you seen race, questions of race play out in your teaching and clinical practice, maybe during the COVID pandemic or before that as well? Well, what I see is the usual rush to attribute this to genetics and to genetic difference. You're seeing that some of the literature, certainly in the press and the media, and my students often just jump to that being the reason. Some of them may think of talk more about like the social determinants, which I agree with Joya Mercurgi. I don't like that word. I prefer social forces, um, like poverty and those kind of things. But then they don't really interrogate, well, you know, why are people of color tending to be, you know, living in poverty that sets them up for this? So I think we continue to glom on to this idea in medicine of biological difference as hmm. being the reason we're seeing this. Just by concluding that it's a biological difference, not a social um, conditioning uh, that makes some people get sick by COVID, do you think, like, is it more difficult for us to address those issues? Or do you think, like, uh, because sometimes people deal with a sense of guilt. They don't, they don't want to address race uh, because by the, if they do, they feel guilty about something. So do you think like it's uh, it's a way for them, let's say, to to stay away from addressing the issue, or it's a it's a way, let's say, to not feel guilty about what's going on? Um, well, I think partly it's about not feeling guilty, but I think it's because the history of scientific racism in healthcare is so hidden that we don't okay. even know that it's there. Um, and okay. that we don't really understand that race is not biological, it's a social construction um, that we constructed um, to deal with our problem that we had was we had this constitution said that all men are created equal. And, but we had gone across an ocean 
and kidnapped a bunch of people, brought them back, enslaved them. So now you have a constitution that says that all men are created equal, but you have, you know, a couple million people enslaved. How do you reckon with that? Well, the way to reckon with that is to say that they are biologically inferior beings and your problem is solved. And then we've used science to perpetuate that idea ever since. I, 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 read, I read a text from uh, Ibrahim Kendi, and it say like, race didn't create racism, but racism created race. It's like, at the very beginning, we didn't have race, and then people become racist. It's just because people were racist, so to justify that, they create race. Um, so I think that's the kind of thought I'm having now. It's like, people wanted to reinforce the idea that they, they wanted to achieve their goal, let's say either by exploitation or either by greed or whatever the goal they, they had at that time, in order for them to push it forward, the agenda, they have to create race and saying that some people are superior and some people are inferior. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and people think that racism was what caused slavery? No, it didn't. We didn't have black people in the United States. We dragged them across an ocean here. It was slavery that created racism. And because we had to have some story to tell ourselves about how we could enslave these people and still say that all men are created equally and um, try to adhere to these fabulous ideas we had about, you know, liberty and justice and freedom for all. So these ideas, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that these ideas um, about what a race is or what people would be included in a race was created after the fact because we needed a reason um, to kind of legitimate kind of whatever present social status quo existed. And how did medicine and science play a role in that? I mean, it's embedded in enlightenment thinking is really this idea that um, uh, people of color are in biologically inferior and we've had just hundreds of years of researchers um, trying to prove that this is true. I mean you can just look at the long sad history and that, that we don't teach anybody about. I have lots of examples of you know there's different in the Enlightenment we certainly had um, Carl Linnaeus who was kind of part of the Swedish Enlightenment and he had his, his system, uh, Nature, uh, which he had his groups of Homo sapiens Europus and Homo sapiens Americanus and Homo sapiens Asiaticus and Homo sapiens Affair, which was African. And here's his description of Homo sapiens Europus, which is, you know, white Europeans. Very smart, inventive, covered by tight clothing, ruled by law. Here's his description of Homo sapiens Affair. Sluggish, lazy, crafty, slow careless, covered in grease, ruled by caprice. And that was his descriptions. He also came up with another category of people called homo monstrosis, or monst monsters, which were the people of South Africa, who he called the missing link between human and ape species. So that was kind of what was going on in the Swedish Enlightenment. In the French Enlightenment, we have Voltaire, who is talking about um, the idea that he says that the Negro race as a species of men is different from ours as the breed of Spaniels is from that of Greyhound. If their understanding is not of a different nature from ours, it is at least greatly inferior. 
You make me think, you know, those issues are not in the past. Um, Those issues are still continuing to present. And uh, recently I saw something on Twitter about a a professor, actually, who who published something like that. that The black community, Hispanic people, they have to come together to ask him to retract his paper because he was telling, like, black people, they usually, they don't waste the challenge, they adapt. Uh, compared, uh, to, compared white people, to white people, for example, for example we try to move we forward. To like, move forward, like, and, and, and it was like an outrage on Twitter because you could have said something like that could have like published like two hundred years, years ago, years but we still live it today. today. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so this is, and we don't learn this history, and so you don't, and it's underpinning this entire healthcare system. Um, you know, people like Kant believed the same kind of thing, and interestingly enough. All of these Enlightenment thinkers saw absolutely no contradiction between the values of liberty and all that and their belief that um, non-white people were innately inferior. However, they did not support the idea of slavery in, in most cases, which is kind of interesting. And then you had just an ongoing you know, group of scientists who were um, Johann Frederick Blumenbach, who came up with his five human varieties, Caucasian, Mongolian, Ethiopian, American, and Malay. Dr. Francois-Marie Prévost, who in the 1830s was doing, um, he was doing um, surgery on enslaved black women without anesthesia. Um, He perfected the C-section. That's who perfected the technique for C-section. You've got Samuel, Dr. Samuel George Morton, who came up with his book, famous book called Crania Americana. And he's the dude who was um, taking skulls and measuring them and found that the Caucasians had the largest skulls and had and the largest brains, and that blacks had the smallest skulls and the smallest brains. Ergo, white people are superior to black people. We can look at the work of Dr. J. Marion Sims, who is the father of modern gynecology, who hired, you know, bought ten or eleven enslaved women, bought a little, built a little shack on his property, called it a hospital and proceeded to do surgery on these women for four years when anesthesia was available. Um, he, did the anesthesia, he did the surgery without um, anesthesia. One woman, um, it was 30 surgeries she had um, to fix um, vesicovaginal fistulas. So once he perfected that, he did not use that technique to help black women. He moved to New York City and did it on white women with... Um, <laughs> With anesthesia, the other thing that he did in New York City was <clears throat> that wealthy men who had wives with vagismus would um, hire him to put them under anesthesia so that they could have sex with them. Wow, wow, wow! And all that is part of our history as <clears throat> healthcare student or have healthcare as healthcare worker, but also part of America. You see what I mean? And those are like issues we don't want to deal with. We don't want to talk about them because I didn't learn that in medical school. You see what I mean? In medical school, me, uh, when I go to medical school and I see all those authors who are like, let's say, white and and privileged or some are, I had this sense like, oh, those people are smart. Those people are extremely smart, so they, they can make it like that. But when you go deeper into the history of of racism, or, or the impact of racism, either like to to uh, to, to uh, like into science, like all they are using racism to exploit um, people's body or black body to move it forward. 
you know, you, you have a sense of why when you go into the place and you see all those, let's say, white guy, um, like those pictures, like <laughs> one after one, you sort of bit so. So there is, there is a reason behind all that and medicine. But we as students, we don't, they don't teach us that. And we don't take time mm-hmm. to learn from them because we are so focused on the biological content that we forget about the social aspect Mm-hmm. Uh, that create the environment where medicine is evolving. Well, I think also because we see science as being, you know, totally objective and that it's, you know, somehow it's created within a vacuum. It's not. Science yes. is created within a social, cultural, economic, political, mm-hmm. and historical political, context. Yeah. And you yeah. are affected by that as a yes. researcher. It changes what you, what kind of questions you ask how you measure things, how you interpret yes. things. And yes. we have to start to be honest about this. A great article just came out in the Atlantic about this this week, about the fact that we have to you know, own up to the fact that science you know, is affected by those issues on that larger context in which it's created. Yeah, because, because the human, like the scientist itself, we have bias. And... So when we look at the object, we bring our bias with us. We have prejudice. We are not that objective as scientists. So we bring all that into like our field and try to imagine if the person, let's say, is a racist, someone with bigot, like full of hatred. So that person will look at science from that lens and they will perpetrate that idea. And we tend to think like, medicine is only what we see like the patient that we're trying to take care of but also the social context affect the patient and our bias also mm-hmm. uh, determine who gets sick who is healthy and who's going to die and it seems like that connects also with what you were saying about how your students will come in and many healthcare students will come in and kind of attribute um, a biological reason for disparities in care bracketing out any social questions, um, either about the healthcare system that we exist in, but also even the ways of knowledge production that led to our quote-unquote objective knowledge. Um, and Lundy Braun, who's a physician, and uh, she also has, I think her PhD is also in um, African studies, which she teaches at Brown University. Um, she um, talks about this disconnect between the research on race that takes place in the humanities and then what happens in the social science uh, and humanities and so- social sciences versus what goes on biomedicine, nursing, public health, and all that. Um, and that, you know, these genetic dis- disparities for racial um, difference, you know, differences really, those genetic explanations are really prominent in biomedicine. And what she says, quote, in quotes, is if you're going to have a practice based on race, it makes sense to include people who have actually studied how the idea of race changes over time and place. And that's the social sciences and the humanities. We have amazing people. So I've been educated also um, in medical anthropology besides nursing. And so I live in kind of these two different worlds simultaneously. Um, and that, you know, social scientists and, human, and the humanists do really thoughtful, careful critiques regarding race that would really help us to do a lot better job. And we don't see that as being science. I don't know how many times I've been told that anthropology is, is you know, there's nothing scientific about it. Um, I'm like, well, it's not science in the, you know, I don't grow things, we don't grow things on petri dishes, but... 
it's still a, it's a legitimate. I think that when we teach evidence-based practice courses in nursing, I say that we're teaching half the evidence. We're teaching the randomized controlled trial, that evidence. That's only, it's, we're working with human responses to illness in nursing. You, then you don't need to include the work of people whose whole question in the social sciences and humanities, the whole question is what does it mean to be human? And we really need the information that these researchers um, and scholars are producing. Yeah. And, and you know, um, the question what it's meant to be human, sometimes it's only um, seen or only uh, written or only read from the perspective of those who study others. Let's say, let's say I have a group of indigenous people. Uh, it's the it's the Western world going out there trying to understand those native people and publish about them. Nevertheless, we never ask the native people what their perspective of themselves. We 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 assume like our perspective is the center, and then everybody has to um, use that perspective. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because. Often when people are studying race or when people are studying racism, the people that are most affected by racism or race, sometimes their view or their perspective miss from the, into the conversation. It's like we're talking about uh, how racism is killing uh, black women. You see what I mean? It's, a, it's like I think their voice are missing and the sense of um, they are not... Uh, yes, you have a lot of movement where you see a lot of black women trying to lead and change things, but I still see they, their voice are missing, and it's always about the way we perceive them. It's like it's like how the white person perceive the black person, or the male perceive the female, or or the Christian perceive the Muslim, or or the straight person perceive the homosexual. So it's it's we we miss those voices um, into our conversation so we can balance them. So that, I think that's one of the things that we have to consider uh, when we talk about um, health disparities and everything because there is not only one narrative out there, there is not only one perspective out there. Uh, we have to find a way to include everybody. Yeah, so we have to be assigning um, articles and books by people who aren't white <laughs> and people of color who actually or indigenous peoples who so i have a great example of this um I talk a lot gray and thomas are two um canadian um nursing scholars who do work in anti-racism who talk about the way that we teach culture to healthcare providers and they call it our superficial and artificial packages and that we teach these little homogenized sanitized ideas about different groups of people and I've been doing, some of the work I've been doing has been reviewing nursing and um, medical textbooks, looking at a lot of this racist content that's in these books. Um, and I'll just give you an example of one from a nursing textbook. This actually was a pharmacology textbook. There was a chapter on, yes. um, I don't know, there was a chapter on culture in there. So these are two white textbook authors who, one of the things they say in this book is, this outlook means that Native Americans attach little value to planning for the future, often considering it foolish. So what I did was I went into this, the scholarly literature of a Maori scholar, um, Linda Smith, who is in New Zealand, who is an internationally known um, indigenous scholar. And I wanted to see what she had to say about this idea of future. 
And what she said was, one of the strategies that indigenous peoples have employed effectively to bind people together politically asks that people imagine a future, that they rise above present day situations which are generally depressing, dream a new dream, and set a new vision. The confidence of knowing that we have survived and can only go forward provides some impetus to the process of envisioning. That's a very different story than these two white authors came up with. And um, the feminist scholar Bell Hooks says that problems arise not when white women choose to write about the experiences of non-white peoples, but when such material is presented as authoritative. And I think that's the problem in these textbooks got impressionable young students. It's a textbook. You assume that whoever's writing this knows what they're doing, which mm-hmm. that you should not assume that, but... Um... Well, and, and I like that too, because we were speaking before about kind of the ways of social production of knowledge, and it, it really like ties together some of these ideas because, you know, I can imagine some critics um, who say, you know, by kind of diversifying those who are engaged in research or are engaged in writing textbooks or whatever it is it's kind of like a social justice kind of cause or something it's the cause du jour but like it's really not becoming less objective in a way it's becoming like more objective because we are going beyond the local biases and prejudices and social positions of those who are doing the research like those two authors of the textbook and instead kind of having this like um multi-ethnic, uh, multi-perspective uh, way of knowledge production, which just inherently will give us a better outlook on reality and whatever whatever questions we're trying to study. So it's actually, it seems like it will be produce a more truthful outcome um, and, and, and actually more authoritative, like you were saying. Um, I was purposely, when I decided to, um, after my doctoral degree, I went back to study medical anthropology and global health. I purposely took coursework um, in non-American contexts and tried to take, you know, mostly it was online, of course, but I have taken some coursework in France, but I've taken coursework through a university in South Africa. Um, I've taken coursework, you know, in Quebec, um, in Denmark, um, you know, anywhere that I wanted a different kind of, and there's a very different perspective on those issues coming out of social democracies versus, you know, um, the U.S. kind of context. And um, try have tried to read the writing of people who actually live in those countries, actually work in those countries, are scholars in that country, and not some white person's version of um, of what's going on. This is like a great conversation. Uh, one of the reason I say that is because when you produce knowledge, you expect like somebody else is going to learn from them, and then it will pass on. Like, but we never question. Like when we look at our curriculum, when we look at uh, our syllabus, we never question who those authors are. It's like once our professors assign a a syllabus to us, so we just read it and we say, okay, I'm going to read this or that author. But we never question what was the background of that author, uh, uh, from which lens the person write this book. And then now you you, you are a medical student, nursing student, public health student, or whatever. And then you are reading this book and you assume it's true and now you are passing it. And then you repeat that on your on your medical practice. So so you you stay with that idea. Um, so you have you have a narrow perspective of everything, but you also receive a lot of prejudice part of your education. 
You see what I mean? So, for, for example, the idea that, for example, black people can feel less pain than white people. So somebody passed the idea to, 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 to their student. And then you, you have a lot of new doctors now going to practice giving less drugs to, to black people. And that's one of the reasons when you look at the opioid crisis, it, it affected most more white people. One of the reasons is because so many folks out there believe that black people feel less pain, so I'm not going to give that person oxycodone or I do my phone, so I'm going to give it more to the white person. And then we end up creating a crisis uh, uh, that affected most likely white people. So just to, to explain to you or to show you how an idea was passed along through our education and then it, it, it ended up like being at the basis of a, of a crisis. And I think education, we have to challenge uh, the authors like that we read, uh, because other than that, we'll just continuing um, bigotry, racism, um, and all, everything. And to get to that pain piece, um, there, there's a 2017 nursing textbook that um, it was that bias in um, medicine uh, clip that I sent you of John Oliver. Actually, he reads out of this book. But here's in 2017, here's what they're teaching our nursing students in a medical surgical textbook about pain. Blacks believe that suffering and pain are inevitable. Filipino clients may not take pain medication because they view pain as being the will of God. Arabs, Muslim, may not request pain medicine, but instead thank Allah for pain if it is the result of a healing medical procedure. Or my personal favorite is Native Americans may pick a sacred number when asked to rate pain on a numerical pain scale. And so is it any, you know, wonder that, you know, that 2016 racial bias and pain assessment and treatment article comes out, PNAS article, what they looked at, the biases um, that first, second, third year and residents, you know, physicians had about thickness of skin, um, many of them still thinking by time of residency, thinking that black skin is thicker than whites or that sure. blacks age more slowly, black blood coagulates more quickly. Well, where do you think they got that from? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the textbooks yeah. that they, yeah. <laughs> well, and the professors who are promulgating these ideas as well. I mean, how, this is my question is, you know, how do we fix this? I mean, I try to fix it in my own class, but I only teach, you know, a section of 32 nursing students at a time. It's going to take me a, I've been doing it for 20 years, but it's going to take me all, I can't do it by myself. Well, what does that look like for you? I mean, how have you pursued changing the larger structures of education um, kind of in-house at your own university or elsewhere, um, even in the exam room? I know one of the articles that you sent us is this liberation in the exam room article. Like how, what are the different ways that you pursue those changes? Well, I've um, mostly been doing it as a teacher. Um, certainly working on the uh, campaign against racism um, with uh, global, with social med uh, folks, but we're looking at structural racism, homelessness and health is what we've been looking at. But um, I feel like um, being probably a teacher is my best option here, although I can't I, my N is going to be low because I, I can only teach so many students, but I keep feeling like if um, I teach the liberation in the exam room framework and that eventually those seeds will get passed on, um, that some students will really glom onto that idea and they will go forth 
And, and I have had some students who've taken that framework and like brought it to work and had discussions with, um, you know, their colleagues and those kind of things. And I did finally get accepted for a statewide conference to present this. It's been a, I've gotten, a, I can't tell you how many rejections I've had to um, present this. But finally, um, helps that we have the whole George Floyd thing going on. Now people actually want to listen to people who you know, are doing um, scholarly work in anti-racism um, stuff. And nursing has um, just has a lot of problems with dealing with racism, which I don't think is significantly different than what's going on in medicine, right? Um, but we have a lot of issues um, that nursing has been very reluctant to um, do much about it. Um, one of the things about nursing is we, and I, I think this construction is valid, not just for nursing. We kind of have a social construction of nurse, and I think this would go for physician as well, is that we're superheroes who transcend the racial and class biases that constrain ordinary people's interactions with people who are different from themselves, that we're colorblind, we're class blind, we're these fabulous people, um, which, which isn't true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so somebody, somebody commented last time I was talking with someone and she said, um, we have to decolonize our curriculum. So many of them keep uh, reproducing the pattern of colonization. Because, you know, when I was in Haiti, most of the authors I would read, they would either be American or French. So, so I can't remember when I have my first Haitian author that I read. I remember when I was in, and maybe in high school, I had one author, but it was like Haitian literature, like seeing like poetry, those kind of thing. That was the unique moment I had a Haitian author. So I know I knew more about f French author than U.S. author than on my own Haitian, and uh, and I think that also is part of colonization because even though I'm Haitian, but I'm. I'm in a Haitian context, but my mind is forcing to think as an American person or mm. as a as a as a French person, even though I'm not in their context. Even when you live inside the U.S., you are a minority person, but you don't have uh, the author in your in your in your curriculum or your syllabi. They are not from the minority group. So I think there's that kind of tension in our education too. And that's something we have to address as we are like trying to spread knowledge because often we are not part of the conversation. They don't want our perspective. Uh, often uh, many of us are left out. And that's why we have to bring that conversation about decolonization because other than that, you have one perspective trying to integrate everybody when not all of us share the common background or share the same cultural uh, aspect of it. Yeah, and I guess we should, probably should um, tell the listeners that that's our we, our connection is that we were um, all in a uh, social medicine course um, in Haiti. You guys were twenty eighteen, weren't you? Twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. teaching in there, and um, uh, Jonas and Brendan were um, students of mine in that course. And I recently had a discussion. I'm teaching one thing online for the online course in Haiti this summer. And so I'm part of the um, curriculum um, kind of planning committee. So, and we, I had that discussion with some of the students um, and some of the Haitian physicians was, you know, who wrote your text, medical textbooks? 
They're like, well, they come from France or they're a translation of English. I said, so do you think that the history of scientific racism from the Enlightenment has made it is in those textbooks? Like, oh, yeah, I suppose that it is. I said, wouldn't that be wonderful if you developed textbooks that were written in Haitian Creole? Yeah. yeah I, I speak Creole with my parents, but I, I had a Creole class when I was in Haiti, but I didn't have a book in Creole. It's like the unique book in Creole I had was like for the class, for the class, but other than that, everything was in French. And you know, so, so somebody was telling me like the Haitian kids would never had a chance to, to put what is in our mind on paper because our mind is thinking something in a language and then we're trying to write or speak a different language. Uh, so, so I think I, if I can take that same example, I will put it in the American context where you, you have a kid living a, a different uh, experience, but when it's at school, like the author, what they're talking about, their experience are so different. And when I say it's different, it's different. There are words they are using that doesn't make sense to you when you live, when you live in a bedroom with all your entire family. So the author is talking about space or about living. Da, da, da. You don't even have space or living condition. So, so, so all those things are like some audio really detach um, from, from the experience of our learners. And we have to address those issues because other than that, we keep the mindset of colonization. Mm-hmm. And I love what you were saying too about um, like developing textbooks in Haitian Creole or or you know, other ways of calling attention to like who's writing our textbooks, whose ways of knowing and of producing knowledge are, are um, authoritative and so on. And, you know, I think by doing that, it allows us to like think, you know, and, and critically analyze that and then choose like which way forward will we choose and connecting to with what you were mentioning earlier about the liberation in the exam room. Like we want to work towards a a way of thinking about medicine and a way of thinking about nursing that is like explicitly for liberation. That's explicitly for life and for greater health and for justice and all these things. And I don't think that we um, should be, or even that we have to be um, kind of uh, shy in saying so. And I, I appreciate that a lot in your work. And and that's something that I've respected for quite a while. Um, and and I'm curious too, like you are somebody who does stand kind of in that bridge of disconnect between the social sciences and the biomedical sciences and all these different worlds. Like what are some of the tensions that you have felt personally or professionally in that work? And how do you navigate those challenging situations? Because it seems like you, uh, or I could imagine that you may not feel like you fit totally at home in either one. Yeah, I, I, I don't fit totally in either one. I don't have a PhD, and that's a problem if you're um, doing uh, trying to do medical anthropology work because you're not accepted by, um, <laughs> and because I'm a nurse as well. Um, doesn't help my cause either, I have to say. Um, when, I go to, so when I go to global health conferences, I don't initially tell anybody that I'm a nurse because they won't talk to me. Um, so I tell them that I'm a medical anthropologist and then that opens the door and then they eventually find out that I've been a practicing nurse practitioner for a really long time. But I find that very interesting. There's a lot of issues around, um, nursing and it, uh, how it's seen, um, 
you know, and and, and how you're um, perceived as weren't not smart enough to go to medical school. Um, so, and I also have people in biomedicine who completely um, think that the work of social science is that isn't real science. Um, it's just made up. Um, just go out and do ethnographies and, you know, they aren't really important and, um, you're not testing hypotheses. And so, you know, that's not really science. And I'm like, well, you know what, I think we need to broaden out our ideas about who produces science. What is science? Um, if it's going to help us at the end of the day, I don't really care. I just want to do a better job taking care of patients and my entire patient population is, um, homeless, elderly, chronically and persistent and mentally ill, all impoverished, and I need all the help I can get to try to figure out how um, to accompany um, these folks yeah. um, towards, um, you know, healing at le or at least some better health. And I'll take whatever I can get as far as ideas, and I don't care where the ideas come from. Um, and I've, there's ideas to be had everywhere. Uh, the hegemony, uh, linguistic hegemony of the English language bothers me. Um, the idea that the only bioethics are Western one-on-one -on -one ethics, there are no other ethics, um, which is totally not true. Um, and that there's really good ideas um, that come from other, I think, and other ways of looking at the world. I think about the idea of Ubuntu, um, you know, in Africa, um, about you can't be human all by yourselves and looking at how do we do become maybe a little bit more collective in our work. I mean, certainly that's a huge problem of why we're not doing very well with the COVID thing. Clearly is this underlying ideology of uh, individualism and competition and consumerism is underlying a lot of those problems. So I think we just need to, I try to educate students to be these open-minded people who are willing to look at everything. You don't have to, and I tell students, I'm going to introduce you to a million different ideas, particularly in the global health course. I teach a decolonized global health course, as decolonized as I can as an old white lady, um, but I'm working, you know, I keep working on it. Um, and that there's all these amazing people who um, are living in impoverished countries, um, who are brilliant, who are doing amazing work, and um, are doing better than, than we are in a lot of ways. You know, look at the Rwandan healthcare system. Wow, there's a lot for us to learn there. Or Uganda is doing a fantastic job with this COVID-19. Maybe we ought to take a look at um, what's going on in these uh, countries uh, who are doing much better at public health um, than we are. Um, so that's kind of what I'm at, trying to take all the, all the good ideas from around the world and, and be open to thinking differently um, and get myself out of my white Western um, hmm. little bubble. Maybe a more general question would be like, how did you first start getting interested in some of these ideas or first start noticing the value of thinking beyond you, the training that you first received? Um, my parents are both activists. So I've been dropping literature for, for, for progressive candidates since I was five years old. Wow. <laughs> my mother um, has done human, I've uh, been on human rights commission in the town where she lives. Um, she's done, she did work, um, a lot of work um, actually for ten, about 10 years in Kenya, um, working on women's empowerment issues in Kenya. Um, so I've had good role models in my, you know, in my immediate family yeah. of, um, and my mother's 
80 and still doing anti-racism work and prison abolish, uh, abolition work and uh, those kind of things. So. Yeah. And, and I was curious too, you know, you'd mentioned that, um, well, before, before the interview, but you had mentioned that you've been very involved in social activism on housing issues and, and healthcare, obviously. Could you tell us more about what that has looked like in your work and how you see that as part of your work as well? Is that something that you see in your clinical work, like lack of housing showing up um, in patient outcomes and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because many of my patients are homeless. I have two um, clinics that uh, when I founded, when I co-founded, and one of them is for um, homeless. Um, and not everybody who comes to, to our home center is homeless, but um, yeah, I mean, I've had people with... I had a guy living under a bridge who was in his late 60s who had CHF and diabetes and how do you manage those kind of issues? Um, yeah, yeah. We, we had a couple of, in my hospital also, we, uh, Boston Medical Center, we, um, we see a lot of homeless people also. It hurts. Um, yeah, it's not something like as a healthcare professional you can process easily when uh, when you have a homeless person and mm. the person uh, the, the one that I had uh, had like uh, he couldn't manage his diabetes and he, he ended up having like some um, ulcers so it's it's hard like to or, or, or are you going to help that the, the wound heal if the person does that as a home like how do you clean that like it's pretty hard. Like it's not something like you can process as a as a human being, and then try to understand that from a medical perspective. And all those factors, they will it determine who will he get sick, die sooner, um, and those are like the factors that we don't talk about in medicine. We or at least we try to avoid because we say it's not our job. Uh, it's, but the but it's the government job or, or the private. But we are the one taking care of those people. We should be the one like advocating for them, saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, when you have a guy who can't uh, have access to to home, so it, and he have end stage kidney disease, that also impact on it." You see what I mean? So it's make it worse. The outcome worse, and, and and so we have to advocate like for people to have a sense of living, like. I, I, to be part, of, to have a place, to be part of a community, to feel that they are contributing too. Uh, mm. But often we will let those things pass, and uh, because it's just another case. And yeah, we had a couple of them, and I, for me it was hard. Like for the first time, I saw that to process it. Mm. And we just we tend to just you know I call my work with the homeless for the last fourteen years slapping a bandaid on social problems because that's essentially yeah. um, what you know, what we've been able to do. Um, there's this much larger problem. We have this huge encampment, and again, this summer, it's even larger than the one last summer um, here in the Twin Cities. Um, and this problem's just going to get worse if more people get it. If they don't, you know, put uh, the stop on evictions, we're going to have an even larger population of homeless folks. And it totally... Um, destroys your health and the other problem is that most a lot of people who are homeless um had mental health issues to start with or are highly traumatized it's about 98 percent of homeless women have been seriously sexually and physically abused they're already coming to the table with incredible amounts of trauma 
about half of people who become homeless have had a traumatic brain injury. And, you know, the sequelae of that doesn't help you to hold on to jobs and relationships often. Um, yeah. And so, we're look, I just see this as being a, just a highly traumatized group of people and who and just another trauma is being piled on top of them that, you know, they end up homeless. That just, you know, really exacerbates all these other things that are going on. Yeah. When I when I say like those voices are missing, this is what I'm what I'm talking about. It's like those people were most affected by homelessness. Their voices are not part when we talk about housing policies. You see what I mean? So the, the because you need them because they are the one who are most affected. They should be like a one when when we take a big decision on housing policies, they should be like part of the discussion. But often mm-hmm. they are so underserved, so underprivileged. We are the one who take decision for them, and this should be. This is not white. I can't take decision for somebody else. I mean, I cannot take decision for my dad. You sort of mean because he can take decision for himself. Or do you want me to? Or do you want us to take decision for homeless people when they are not part of the conversation? Yet there's something that is not white on our society. You sort of it so. Uh, yeah, there's so mm-hmm. many voices missing, and I think when we are in the room talking about big issues, we should always, always, always ask ourselves whose voice uh, are missing. So, uh, who is not at the table? <laughs> we do have one, and I can't remember the name, I'm sorry, of the group. We have one um, organization in town that is going around and getting stories or kind of using participative action um, you know, research kind of methodologies to actually get the voices of um, folks who are living um, with homelessness and bringing that to the legislature. So there are some groups that are, at least here in Minnesota, who are working on, who recognize that fact that, you know, we can't, those of us who aren't homeless um, can't be speaking for um, people who are, but we need to help them to use their voice. I mean, nobody's ever, you know, there's always this, oh, I want to go to Haiti and be a voice for the voiceless, or I want to work with homeless people and be a voice. Nobody doesn't have a voice. It's what Bell Cooks called crushed or uh, choked silence. Um, <laughs> they have a voice, but the power structure is ensuring that those voices are, are not mm-hmm. being heard. There's this line I love by Rudolf Erkow, who says physicians are the natural advocate or attorney for the poor. And obviously it's more than just physicians, but I just love that idea of saying, you know, those of us in healthcare, we're the ones who are going to be seeing the ulcers from the diabetic man who's been homeless or, you know, somebody who has a major heart surgery and then can't clean the surgical site because they don't have running water or something like that. And they're the ones who end up in our emergency rooms in our clinics in our morgues. And like to the extent that we can, because we do have a voice by and large, like we need to add our voice to those who are being the most harmed by these systems. And I think in a way that's almost unique in society, maybe besides like EMS or law enforcement or something, but like those of us in healthcare have a window onto the way that, society like really crushes the vulnerable. And so I think there's just like a moral duty um, that's incumbent upon us um, to to add our voices and like work for the good of the most vulnerable um, and not just treat our jobs like a technical skill set or something like that. Yeah, and seeing even when you're doing a physical exam, what I'm thinking about and when I have a homeless person who's in my exam room, my first question, my first thought is, what is the trajectory that got us here? 
to you and I in this room and you in the situation you're in and me in the situation I'm in. Um, what were those trajectories and how do we work backwards and start to fix all of the different things that led you to be homeless and in my exam room? And what is the biology, I mean, not just, and what is the stress biology behind all of this? And I don't know what they teach you in medical school. I don't know if they just teach you straight up stress biology, or do they teach you about the biology of adversity, trauma, and oppression, which is something I do teach, is this is what happens to your body on racism. This is what happens to your body on trauma. And what are the long-term sequelae for that? Um, you can, you know, it's like you can read it in the patient's, in the patient's body, all of the, there the, it's that, uh, you know, Nancy Krieger's idea of social embodiment, that we, our body, we literally embody all of this social, um, environment, um, that we, and you can see it on the physical exam of your patient. I was seeing a, a, an experiment, um, where, uh, they, they look at like animal were like more stress. And they compare like two group of animals. One one was under a lot of stress, and the other was not. And they infected them with influenza because our body understands some uh, interact some uh, with all the stress, social stressors, and we cannot. Our bodies cannot um, react now when when we when we are sick or when a germ um, infect us or, or when any other condition. So like those chronic aspects, chronic stressors. Um, they they literally make us live shorter, and I don't I don't see that being brought out in nursing education, and I'm sounds like it's not being brought out in medical education. Um, I, I think you learn stress physiology, right? But I don't know if anybody helps you to make the connection that when your brain perceives adversity or oppression, you're going to have HPA axis activation. You're going to have autonomic nervous system activation. You're going to have this exaggerated inflammatory response. You're going to have changes in patterns of glucose and lipid metabolism. And in the case of things like racism, this is an everyday occurrence. So you're just chronically stressed. So eventually you're going to get cardiovascular disease. You're going to get insulin resistance. You're going to have that hippocampus is going to atrophy. And then you can't even turn off the HPA axis. You're going to get eczema and asthma from exaggerated inflammatory responses. You're going to get diabetes and obesity from changes in glucose and lipid metabolism. And these can all be traced back to that chronic um, stress. But I don't know if we help students or if we look, you know, to look at it that way. There's a, just an amazing amount of researchers who are doing work in this area. There's also some folks doing research in the connectome um, University of Minnesota is one of the, I think you probably know about that, Brendan. Um, there's some uh, group who's been looking at the salience network and how salience network dysfunction is actually probably what's helping to cause the adverse mental health consequences of racial discrimination. Um, so they're actually, you know, starting to be able to understand the biology underneath all of this that's driven by racism and trauma and discrimination. Yeah, I think we just get a very surface level view of the HPA axis and cortisol, stress physiology and all of that. But I, I don't think that we have done a good job of connecting that to the effects of chronic stress and to allostatic load and weathering and all these phenomena. Um, ACE scores, you know, we do talk about adverse childhood effects. Um, so, so that is a start, uh, thankfully. In the same way that we falsely attribute to biology what is probably due to um, social forces um, in many ways, I think, you know, even you see this around the COVID 
um, response is that people will say, well, if people are having worse outcomes with COVID because they have chronic disease, maybe they should have made better choices in their life and they shouldn't have gotten themselves diabetes or they shouldn't have X, Y, Z, right? And that, that just conveniently ignores the many ways that, uh, you know, for example, diabetes or heart disease is produced as a result of some of these chronic stresses and like the way that our society is set up in its foundations. In medical anthropology class, I, I, we learned about the moral narrative of lifestyle excess as the driver of disease and how we teach this um, narrative about chronic disease and it's all about you. And then it's like you don't even and don't talk about the social forces of health, the social forces of equity that are all um, part of that. Or there's dotaries, the logic of blame, which is what we also teach. And I talk to our, I teach my students about this. This is what we taught you and we need to unteach you. Um, blaming particularly poor people, um, for their problems. Or you can go into sociology and look at the sociological imagination, what says, what, what are personal problems versus public issues? Well, if you've got 68% of the people in your country who are um, overweight or obese, or I think it's overweight, um, that's not a personal problem. That's a public issue. And yeah. we need to look at upstream and downstream. So there's all these really great ways of thinking about this, again, from a social scientist's humanities perspective that we need to bring in, which I do bring into my teaching of nursing students. But um, that needs to happen more often. Yeah, you mentioned previously as well um, the idea of accompaniment and the way that you think about accompaniment, walking alongside your patients, um, especially those on the margins. And I know that the word accompaniment has a long history in social medicine and even going back to certain roots in liberation theology um, and other roots. But I'm curious, what does accompaniment mean to you and how do you live that out? Um, I think by just listening to people and seeing each person as a unique person human being who, um, to quote um, one of the social worker that I work with at our homeless um, center, and he says that this, that every person is a unique individual whose story has never been heard before or seen before and will never be heard or seen again. And they're all different. And everybody comes to their situation. I talk a lot to students about what was the pathway that got us to here. We talk about the pathways to depressive illness, which are many, many, many. The pathways to most things, because um, most of what we deal with in healthcare is highly complex. Um, some patients don't care about their A1C um, coming down or what it is. And I'm like, okay, well, let's try to find out what you do care about, or could we bring it down a couple of points, um, you know, from 14 to 12. I've, uh, that, for me, that's a success, right? And we have to redefine what success looks like. If your patient was 400 pounds and a year later, they're 250. Okay. They're still probably can, their BMI is probably considered, you know, not right, but that's a miracle as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm just interested in having relationships with people and um, hopefully helping them towards some kind of healing or some kind of feeling better. I mean, a lot of people can't be cured and many of my patients are very elderly. Um, whatever they got is not going away, but what is it you want to still be able to do? And let's figure out a way for you to still go to the casino or to go you know, to the bingo hall or whatever it is you really want to do. Let's see if we can figure out a way to do that. And sometimes it takes a really long time for patients to finally, um, you know, stop smoking or, or want to do it. And sometimes they don't. And I just accept people 
um, where they are. I have, well, he, um, he has since died, but I had a patient who would show up um, for hypertension checks, checkups every once in a while, um, who used to bring in a bag of potato chips and uh, Pepsi and open them up right in front of me and go take my blood pressure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you and all your fancy studies, he used to say, look it, I live on potato chips and Pepsi and my blood pressure is fine. <laughs> and he never stopped doing that. Um, and that I, I didn't say, well, you're not coming to my clinic anymore because you won't do I'm just like, okay, well, what other health things? I eventually got him to eat some carrots. That was like the first vegetable he'd ever eaten in his life. And I think we got him to like only half the time Pepsi and the other half the time like sparkling water. So, I mean, we made, there were some improvements, but um, but I, I run a free clinic that I don't charge anything for, and I also don't get paid, um, so I can do that kind of stuff, but I don't have, you know, RVUs to worry about, and I don't have, um, you know, benchmarks that I have to make for my patient's blood pressure and all that stuff, so. That, that, that's great, you know, you, you, you keep that human, humanness, you know, before you were a professional, you were first a human being, and you have emotion, you have feelings, and and connection are important for you. So you keep those values or core values and you bring them toward your practice. And I think that's make a huge difference, um, not only in your practice, but for the patient also, the patient health also is make a huge difference because you know, you can see the difference between someone that is doing your work because they got to do it because, um, because they have been benchmarked to, to, to meet. But there's, there's a difference between somebody who say, okay, I see that person, I'm going to make one single difference uh, in their life and that's that's extremely important for us as healthcare professional because we think we are busy we have to do this we have to do that but uh, when we connect at the human level with somebody and help them change a little bit of their behavior or, or at least make them feel part of themselves that's leave a, a mark um, forever on on the person I think we have to be honest about, um, you know, I think about, I do a lot of, I've done some work um, around uh, obesity and when they did um, dynamic systems mapping of obesity, um, it was 108 variable problem. <laughs> I, and it's amazing to look at these. I don't know, Jonas, if you did any work with dynamic systems mapping, um, Johns Hopkins does a lot of work with that, um, where you take problems and try to figure out all these different variables. I'm like, so you're going to tell the patient to eat less and exercise more. It's a 108 variable problem that's multi-sectorial, that's multidisciplinary, that's, you know, we, it's, there's not going to be some simple answer to this stuff. And that's what we yeah. like. We love reductionism. And that's, yeah. I think, why, you know, uh, scientists don't like social scientists who are, we don't, because we understand the world that you can't, it's not, you can't really reduce it. Um, but 108 variable problem, are you kidding me? I mean, we and was and thinking that doctors and nurses are going to fix this alone. Oh, hello! Um, okay, we've got a food system that's a mess. We've got a neoliberal economic system that has driven that food system. I mean, we have climate change. We have environment problems. We have education problems. We have social justice, you know, justice system problems. I mean, and they all and that's actually in that model. This uh, dynamic system map uh, for obesity. Well, we got a lot of problems, but we got to. Hopefully a lot of good people working on them. And one thing I'll take away from this is, is just the idea that if we were able to see more clearly what's happening, um, we'll be able to address these problems uh, in their totality. I just have one question I'm going to kind of leave with uh, people listening to this. 
You know, mm-hmm. healthcare providers purport to use high quality scientific evidence to guide patient care. What is the nature of our commitment to evidence-based care when we're using this historically racist evidence um, is what we're using to guide um, that patient care? Thank you for stopping by and thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you for sharing so much with us. And we do hope like that Lilo, uh, your, your knowledge can be like a, a seed. Um, uh, so, so something great can come out of that, not only here in the U.S., but also to everyone like listening to this podcast, wherever they are in the world. Thank you so much, Wood, for, you know, you're awesome. You know that. And uh, you are contributing so much to the world and making making the world a bit better and better. And you're investing your time, your knowledge in the new next generation. And uh, I feel proud and, and I feel happy about that. Thank you. And I feel I'm hopeful having students like uh, you and Brendan and um, many of my, most of my students at uh, the university where I teach and the students in Haiti uh, that uh, this next generation, um, maybe you guys will be the generation who turns this ship um, around. This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.